Welcome to the Vox Community Podcast. You can learn more about Vox Community at voxoc.com. Join us on Sunday mornings at El Dorado High School in the Performing Arts Center at 9 and 11 a.m. Hello, Vox! Hello, hello, hello! Good morning! Hi, guys! Four of you are awake. Okay, great. Hey, just so you know that if you're ever thinking about where you want to sit, this is a really good space right here. You will not, I won't call you out like Mike, I don't think. Um, but do you notice, that it, as a speaker, this is just a side note, we're not started yet, but just as a side note, speakers, as a speaker, to speak to nobody is hard. So if you ever feel led to sit right here, you will get a jewel in your crown. And if you don't know anything about that, that's Christian jokes. Um, hi, I am Carrie. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Vox. We are very happy to have you here, and I genuinely mean that. Because um, some people just say it, and I actually mean it. Uh, because I'm better than most people. So I'm, I am very thankful that you're here. I don't know where you come today, where you come from, or, or like what space you're in right now. Um, but one thing that I love about this community is we like just welcome all your spaces. Um, so I know some Sundays I come really rattled because I got to get my kids here. And I don't know about you, but Sunday mornings with my kids, I'm like a demon-possessed, crazy person. Like, we got to go serve God. Get your clothes on. And I'm just freaking out. And they're like, okay, aren't you one of the pastors? Um, so I don't know where you are emotionally or whatever, but we just want you to know that you're welcome here and, and you can just sit in whatever you have this morning. So if you're just really joyful this morning, great. If you're just pissed this morning, are we allowed to stay out here? I think we are, because Vox isn't going to say anything. You can't say anything in this church. Uh, uh, if you're just like, and if you're angry this morning, if you're frustrated, if your heart is heavy, we want you to know that for the next hour or so, this space was created for you to just experience whatever you need to experience. But we do really hope that you would leave here with a little bit of hope. We hope that you would leave here knowing that you're not alone in what you're struggling with. And we hope that you would leave here knowing that God loves you. He really does, no matter where you are, no matter where you are, even if you don't really love him right now. Uh, we want you to know that, uh, we want you to leave knowing that that's okay too. And that sometimes that's just real. So we have a fun picnic. Let's transition into a fun picnic after that. Uh, if you want to hang out today, we have this picnic. No, we're not providing food because we don't have that much money. So uh, we would love for you to come, though, and hang out on the grass. And we're going to just get to know each other. Me and Tim, are you hanging out today? He's not. He's not hanging out today. He doesn't really like you. So I'm going to be there. Um, uh, I'm going to hang out. So if you want to get to know me a little better, come hang out and say hi. But we just wanted to create a space where we could just hang out, have a good time, get to know each other a little bit, and eat some food and hang out because it's like only like 100 degrees today. So if you want to do that, come hang out with us. This is what's going to happen today. We're going to sing some songs. We are going to do some time of teaching. Tim is our, our teaching pastor today. So Tim's going to be preaching and giving a great message for you encouragement. I heard a little bit of it, and it's good, so don't leave. Uh, and then we're going to go into a time of communion. And um, we, that's what these little things are up here. Uh, we, you can refer to it as the Eucharist or communion. And really, uh, anyone and everyone can come to this. It's kind of what we've based our church on, that uh, anyone can come to this table and, and take, no matter where you are in your life, uh, you can come to that. So we're excited about that. We're going to do some question and answer uh, answering time. Uh, also, if you just are like struggling today and you just need to talk to somebody, one thing I love about this place is we welcome your questions. Uh, you can text in questions at any time. And preferably not during the preaching, but you could. You'd be like, I just disagree with that and text that in. That's fine. Um, but you can do that. We're going to try to answer those as best as we can and get to those. Also, if you just need to talk to somebody today or you need prayer, we have community pastors. They have orange lanyards on and they're over there. Raise your hand. There he is over there. I can't remember your name, but he's wonderful and amazing. Um, and, and Bruce, I remember Bruce because he prayed for us today. So if you want to talk to somebody, sometimes you just need to talk 
to somebody. And um, we want to provide that for you. Uh, so you don't have to come with a, with a very spiritual answer or question. You could just come as you are and talk to those guys. But we have an awesome treat today because we have our dear friend and pastor, Mike, on uh, Skype today to answer some of our questions. So I th- are we doing that? Yay! Hello? What is up with your glasses? What are you doing? Are you playing paintball? <laughs> no, I, uh, I, I heard you spit a lot when you speak. And so I just wanted to be careful. That's why, that's why, that's why the, like, the, the rows there are empty that's in the front. <laughs> oh, is that why? Yeah, yeah, they were filled when I was... <laughs> Wow. So much love. So much love. <laughs> well, good morning, Vox. Hello. So great to see you. Hi, Carrie. Hi. All right. So um, we've got a couple questions and then you've got one, correct? Yeah. Maybe I was supposed to go first. I don't remember. We run a really tight ship here, don't we? It's a tight ship. It is a tight ship. No question about it. All right. Uh, all right. Well, then why don't I, why don't I go first okay. and, then, uh, and then you kind of take the last one. Go ahead and put that first one up on the screen if you would. Good morning, everybody. So great to see you, particularly if you're wearing a tank top in the second row. Well done. Okay. All right. I think that one is for Carrie. That Carrie's. one would be for so me. There we go. Two. All right. I'll take, I'll take this one here. I've recently read um, uh, some views that in the Hebrew scriptures and traditions, the Holy Spirit was considered the feminine representation or expression of God. We obviously believe God is more than gender and not male or female, yet male and female are created in God's image and uniquely image God in part through our genders. It seems masculine and feminine pronouns are ways for us to be able to grasp and understand the Godhead. Next. And understanding much of the Holy Spirit's function, it seems like it does embody the feminine. For instance, comforter, wisdom, helper, strength, the second spiritual birth coinciding with our first natural birth, gifts of the Holy Spirit, kind of like woman's intuition, etc. Wow. Anyways, I know. Uh, Great question, Carrie. Anyways, why don't we ever refer to the Holy Spirit as she or her? Why is every pronoun in reference to God in the English translations masculine? Is there anything else to that question? I can't tell because of the three dots. Okay. Holy cow, what a wonderful question. Uh, a couple of thoughts. First of all, the, 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 the word spirit uh, is masculine or feminine or neuter, depending on what language you're speaking. So in Hebrew, the word is ruach, and you got to say it like that. And it is a feminine noun. And in Greek, it is the word pneuma. And that is uh, in the neuter. So it's not masculine or feminine. Uh, but when Jesus in John 14 and 16 refers to the Holy Spirit as comforter, Jesus uses that word parakletos is a masculine noun. So, so it really depends what you want to pick and choose. Are there images um, that are feminine images used of God all over the Old Testament? Of course, Jesus even talks to Jerusalem as a mother would talk to um, her chicks. I mean, it, it, there is feminine imagery all over the place, of course. Um, why? So, so if the question is, is the Holy Spirit God's feminine expression, I think that introduces an unnecessary binary distinction in the Godhead that isn't there, meaning that all of God is male and female and bigger than male and female. And so I wouldn't say that one person of the Godhead is the feminine expression and the others are the masculine. I would just simply say that, that both male and female uh, in terms of human image bearers, are needed to fully reflect the image and the echo of what God is like. The second thing I would say is, why are the references to God predominantly male? Well, because even though there are loads of feminine uh, analogies, metaphors, uh, uh, words like El Shaddai, which uh, was a was a depending on how you translate it, can refer to God's fertility as a creator and a very feminine image. Uh, the, the, the majority of the instances and the majority of the references are masculine. God is a bridegroom to Israel, his bride. 
And there, there is probably a bit of patriarchy in there as God condescends to speak to his people in, in ways and forms they understand. Um, but I don't know that, that I would be comfortable saying that the Holy Spirit is the feminine expression of God. I would much rather say uh, God is perfectly comfortable uh, being expressed in feminine terms just as he is in, uh, being expressed in masculine terms. So I don't know if that clears it up. Yeah, I, I think everyone here is really tracking really well. I, I, it feels, I feel really, I feel yep. better. I feel, I feel like masculine yep. and feminine all at the same time right now. Well, thank you. Me too. <laughs> that was all good. Right. It was good. All right, so question. I'm glad, I'm glad I could clear that up with the safety glasses. Um, <laughs> give me question number two, Carrie. Here we go. I see you. I see no question number two. Well, if you don't. Ah, there we'll... it is. There we go. Wait a minute. I'm reading Galatians and the cut it or keep it circumcision debate. <laughs> <laughs> uh, wow. The cut it or keep it circumcision debate. Now, if you're not familiar with the Bible, this is one of the glorious passages where <laughs> Paul's talking to people who insist that circumcision is necessary for salvation, and uh, that's as far as I'll go. But there is a there is a cut it or keep it debate, yes. And this just dawned on me: prior to Jesus's coming, what did the women do to show they were part of God's family? Now, if you're here this morning and you don't know what circumcision is, please ask your parents. Uh, I'm not going to explain that right now. Uh, or ask Carrie after I'm done. Yep. I think she'd be great. At, at the picnic. We, that. That's oh, good picnic before. chat. That's good picnic talk. A absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> particularly, what, particularly if you're bringing, well, forget it. Yeah, but Particularly let's stop. if you're bringing hot stop. dogs. <laughs> you and right, I together so, is not a good thing sometimes. <laughs> no, no, it's wonderful. Um, uh, so wait a minute. I love that you observe this. Yes, for, for a woman to be part of the family of God, typically and, and most normally in the Old Testament meant she just resided as part of the household or under the authority of, of somebody who was Jewish. You have instances with people like Esther or Ruth, for instance. Uh, Ruth loses the male sort of uh, lineage or husband or father and uh, takes it upon herself um, with Naomi's urging and and uh, a, a bit of a bit of um, sultry persuasion uh, to 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 become part of the tribe of Israel, not only just through her expression of faith to her mother-in-law, but also through her union uh, then with Boaz. And all that means is that when Paul and Jesus, and starting with John the Baptist, begin to make baptism the sign of the covenant mm. and not circumcision. Mm. That was a way of throwing the doors open to women that had never been done before. And so, so yes, you would have uh, the man, you know, in some instances in the book of Acts, who would be baptized as a representative of his whole household. But now women could participate in the sign of the covenant in ways circumcision did not allow. And the reason for that is because circumcision intended to remind the Israelites that God's promise was coming through their lineage, through their physical offspring, and that Israel primarily was an ethnic tribe, the church was going, going to be trans-ethnic. And so it, wasn't not, it was no longer configured or tied to specific childbearing. Now it was open to anybody, everybody, anywhere, anytime. And baptism was more obviously the sign of welcome for everybody in that regard. Mm, that's Boom. good. That's so good. You're good. Come Boom. on. Come on. All right. Listen, um, I love you guys so much. It is hard to be here and to see you there. We are so grateful for you. And um, hey, Carrie, when you're done, uh, I was just thinking of this. When you're done answering your question, um, why don't you lead us in prayer for uh, Texas? Uh, some parts are, are getting 50 inches of rain and I'm hearing from a couple of friends down there and it's just going to be awful. Mm. It's, it's, it could be Katrina-esque in some ways mm. yeah. uh, in terms of the devastation in Houston. So I think we ought, to, we ought to pray for that. Sound good? Absolutely. We love you. We, we sure miss you. Oh, 
Well, that is so mutual. I'm going to be watching on Facebook, so carry on. Okay. Carry on, my sister from another mister. That's right. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. Bye, everybody. That was super helpful. Actually, that second question, man, that's good, right? Like that helps clear, I don't know for you, maybe just for me, but I, I sure appreciate it. Here's my question. I spoke a couple weeks ago on gifting and just that you all have a gift and we need your gift. We want you to use it here. And I don't care where you are at stage in your life. We want you and we need you. And God wants you and needs you. And he doesn't need puppets. He needs partners. Um, so, but this is the question that came in. Carrie, we enjoyed your talk today. Loved your enthusiasm. Thank you. Uh, our question is, what about people who have been told they can't use their gift, for example, in churches that won't let women do certain things? There are other circumstances like when the leadership thinks you're too young or don't have the right skills. Well, that's a great question for me because clearly I am a pastor um, and that's not always welcomed because I'm a woman. And so I've come up, um, up against this a lot. And I know I really appreciate some of my counterparts who are women pastors who have paved the way for me. This is my personal answer. For me, fighting for my position has never been the place that I go to. I believe that God has given me a gift and he's given it to me uh, in full. And I believe that he will bring that gift out. Um, I don't feel that I have to fight for that. I feel that I just do what I'm called to do and God will open up and lead the way. Now, if you are in a church that completely diminishes you because of your gender, race, or anything, um, then you're in the wrong church and you should leave that church. <laughs> um, and you should come here because we want you here. Um, and they clearly have, yes, they clearly have a woman on stage. So that's, you know, whoa, crazy. Um, but I, I want to just address this thing. Um, one, if God has given you a gift, he's not, he's not mean. He doesn't give you a gift and then go, ha-ha, I'm never going to let you use it, okay? So if he's given you a passion, that passion's grown, he's faithful to complete that passion. I am living testimony to that. But there has been years, many years, that the passions that I've had or the gifts that I've had um, in fullness have been put on a shelf for a little bit. And some of that was because I needed to grow and I needed to learn. And other of that is it just wasn't the right time. So I want to encourage you that just because you might not be walking in your gifting in the moment, there is always, and hear this, there's always opportunity for you to be used. There's always opportunity. I was a part of a Bible study at one point at a church. I am the worst cook ever. You never want me to cook for you. Ask my husband. Um, yet there was a need in this Bible study that I was going to. And it was, I, I didn't get to speak at it. I wasn't facilitating it. I was in a group of women. I have lots of opinions. They didn't really want to hear them. Okay, great. <laughs> I just was there. The need was they needed snacks every single week. And nobody wanted to stand up. So I was like, all right, can I buy the snacks? Do I have to cook them? They were like, please buy them. I was like, okay. And so for two years... I never got on stage. I never spoke out. I brought snacks for two years. Man, what about my gifts, God? <laughs> what about what I'm supposed to do? And God just said, will you be faithful, Carrie, in bringing the snacks to the people that need them? Yes. God fulfilled the plan in my life, and he's still fulfilling it. Sometimes you just look for opportunities to bless and be a ministry. And let me tell you, those two years were some of the most fund, foundational, spiritual times in my life. God knew what he was doing. I didn't need to be on stage. I needed to be receiving and bringing snacks. So I hope that encourages you, that there's opportunity for you here. We love your gender. <laughs> we love it, okay? We welcome it. But sometimes, instead of looking at, I have to have my gifts and my rights, Maybe just pray about where's an opportunity that I can step in and see what God's going to do. Let's pray for, for Katrina. Okay, now that's in my mind. Let's pray for Texas because for sure that's, we want to care about the things that God cares about. God, we just thank you for this morning. We thank you for a pastor team that works in unity. We thank you that we don't come here to a church that um, comes to praise a man um, or a woman, that we come to praise the God. Um, and it is one that we serve. Bunch of misfits, uh, the playing field is equal, but we serve one perfect God. So God, our hearts as your children come before you right now and we ask um, for your care. We ask for um, your righteousness and your holiness, God, to come to human places and levels and just comfort those that are hurting. Of course we ask, God, 
stop the destruction if, if, that's where you, if that's where your hand is. But God, we know that, that we've learned before from the scriptures that, that things happen and, and this world is broken and it's crying out. It's crying out, God, um, for salvation. And Lord, as this is happening in Texas, I think of all these people there that are just crying out. And I pray, God, that you'd minister to them. I pray that other Christians and other people who um, just claim you as their savior would come alongside and bring ministry and love and help, not just in words, but in deeds to help those that are there, God. I pray that homes would be opened up for refuge. I pray that this thing that's happening there right now, this destruction would come out on the other side, that although there was destruction, there would definitely be a place where people that might not have talked before would have come together, that homes that would have been opened to their neighbors maybe would have never been opened before because there would have not been a need, that what caused that this destruction is causing would be redemption for people that are there. That would be new relationships and, and new, um, and just new ways to see you in bigger and better ways that what something wants to tear us down would be the very thing that brings us together. I pray that, God. I pray for unity for Texas. I pray that that people that claim you as their savior would rise up and open up their doors and their hearts and their finances to help and show that we care. We care because you care. So our hearts are with them in Texas. Our hearts are with our world that is groaning, God, for saving. It's groaning for truth and it's groaning for love. So I just pray that we would, our little Vox community, would not go about our everyday forgetting those that are hurting, that we would think about it and pray about it and ask God, what do you want us to do, if anything, um, outside of prayer? We just thank you, God, that we can talk about these things and pray about these things to a God that is listening and cares. Thank you for this in Jesus' name, amen. One of the great things about our church is that we don't want it just to be about pastors that their job is to preach at you. We want you to know that this is, we want to share real stories from real people, just real people every day who aren't paid pastors. We have Kendra here today that's going to share her story with us. Let's welcome Kendra. Yeah. Also, how cute are you today? Thank you. Okay. Good morning. All right. If I could use one word to describe my childhood, it would be fulfilling. I was beyond blessed to be raised in a home built on the rock of Jesus. At the age of nine, we moved from Colorado to South Africa, where my parents worked in ministry to bridge the gap between race, socioeconomic challenges, and a country deeply struggling with trust. I spent several years of my youth as a missionary kid in South Africa, learning a whole new culture, escaping the forbidden mambas, and riding my horse to explore the jungles. Looking back, it was actually a blessing to live without electricity and spend a majority of my time barefooted. In some ways, these simplicities are probably what I need most today. Fast forward to high school, when my dad was diagnosed with an ugly degenerative back condition that necessitated six surgeries, all leaving him in more pain than the one prior. I remember days that he just screamed in pain, lying in bed, burning, radiating down his legs, Oh, I have so many amazing memories of him. These were not the ones I want to remember. Perhaps this is when a disease within me started that I'd like to call the if-only syndrome. If only he could feel better. If only he would heal. Life would be so much better. If only God would deliver us and be stronger than the trials we face. If only. Then I went to college at Biola University where I met my husband Thomas and I later married him after graduation. Up until that point, I wouldn't say that my life had been easy, but it had been rich. Rich with experiences, rich with travel, rich with culture, teaching, love, guidance, and biblical teaching. My parents had been fabulous examples for me. My professors had been solid instructors. My sporting coaches, my friends were very supportive. In many ways, I often think that these are the reasons my challenges had been and were to come would be conquerable. In the summer of 2003, I was 24. My dad actually was only 45. He had a horrible sinus infection. After several visits to the doctor and gallons of antibiotics, the MRI of his brain revealed a true diagnosis of a tumor. Only a week later, it was surgically removed and the pathology revealed the monster that we call cancer. Three months later, my dad died. My dad, the biggest cornerstone of our family, he was gone. 
my dad, the one who followed me in his car while I mountain biked five miles an hour up a treacherous mountain in Colorado just to ensure my safety. He was gone. My earthly father, the closest example of my heavenly one, was gone. It was pain I cannot describe. If only he was still here. If only God wouldn't have let that happen. It was during this time that I began my journey to change careers, and I became a physician assistant. I needed to be able to focus my attention to something that I felt really mattered. It was definitely the best way I could transform my heartache to compassion. If only my dad was still alive, right? This was especially true when my mom remarried, and it created the hugest division my family had ever seen. Her spouse became the biggest disappointment for my sister and I. If only my dad could be here to take care of her. If only he could be here to support an example for my husband, to lead our family, to guide my mom financially. There wouldn't be so much turmoil if he was here. If only. But in the midst of my questioning, I often sensed God whispering to me, if only you could see others around you hurting. Reach out to them. And it was true. In some of my darkest days, I have met patients who astound me with their stories of pain and loss. Gently coming alongside others has truly been the most amazing way that God has patched up some of my, if only, wounds. And then more life happened. After my education was completed, I started my career in orthopedics, and Thomas and I wanted to start a family. Days turned into months. Months turned into years. Years of waiting. Medical appointments. Extensive treatment, including in vitro fertilization. Tragically, after thousands of dollars and two miscarriages, I had had it. My friends had tons of kids. My sister had kids who was seven years younger than me. Heck, the girl walking down the street who was 15 had kids, and she didn't even want them. My if-only disease flared back up again, and I was angry. I isolated myself. I couldn't stand the thought of socializing with families. I simply thought, well, if only God would grant me this wish, I'm sure I could be happy. Slowly, God worked a gentle miracle, and we turned our hearts towards adoption. Four years later, Haven, our daughter, and Triumph, our son, joined the home, our home all the way from Ethiopia. It was truly the biggest dose of grace and mercy that I have felt in a very long time. God was saying once again, well, if only you could see what I see. And the experience, as long as challenging as it was, was so amazing. So we are now in the process of adopting baby number three. But even today, my disease continues, and I feed my discontent. If only we could make more money to get ahead of ourselves, to pay off debt, and take care of this adoption. But might I just confess to you right here, right now, I'm the biggest spender on the planet. If only my mom, and my husband's laughing because he's like, finally. If only my mom wouldn't have to deal with a man who gives her no support when my dad was incredible. If only I could train more. If I could just become faster. If I could race in competitions I want to. If only, if only. And then perhaps you ask yourself similar questions without even realizing it. Maybe you think, if only I could find someone just right and get married. If only my kids were just more obedient and they didn't rebel so much. If only my job was easier, not so stressful. If only my spouse understood me more and wasn't so argumentative or defensive. But Satan is so good at convincing us that we need more, that life is never enough, or that somehow pain and tragedy is always from God. But he wants us to believe that God's word, his promises, his provision, his character is never enough, that somehow other things will make you more happy. I am in so in process just like you, yet today I am trying to find contentment in the here and the now. Finding beauty in this struggle is deeply yearning for God and not just keep saying, if only. It is so hard to get up here and share your story. I'm going to make you clap one more time for Kendra because that was so good. We're going to go into a time of worship, and I don't know where you came today, and maybe her story just kind of resonated with you, even if you're a guy, and uh, you kind of came here, and you're like, man, the if-onlys are where I sit. Uh, we don't want you to check a box this morning. We want you to come and be where you are and let this be a place of rejuvenation. Maybe it's just a place of grief, and you just need to grieve today. 
we're going to go into worship, and worship looks different for everyone. See, most churches you go to, and they want you to stand up, and I'm a stand-up girl. In fact, I'm always in the corner. I mean, I'm an addict, guys. Like, I worship Jesus like a drug addict. So, like, I'm like, yeah, you know. You don't got to be me. Don't be me, please. Uh, but be you. So if you want to stand, we, we want you to stand. If you want to raise your hands, we want you to raise your hands. If you're new to church and you don't know why they're doing it, it's because life looks like this a lot, and we just sometimes have to go like this. If you just need to sit and you need to grieve and you just need to cry, if you need to sit and be angry and just talk to God about your anger, worship is a way where you can just sit and let it bathe over you. No one's talking at you. It's personal. So we want to welcome you into that space, whatever it looks like for you, and and allow the Holy Spirit to minister to wherever you are. Okay? Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, hello, Vox. My name is Tim. Well, I actually didn't expect a response. My, uh, my students don't give me a response. Um, I'm Tim Muehlhoff. I'm part of the teaching team here. I'm also a professor at Bilo University. Um, I'm just amazed at the people who tend Vox. Kendra's story, we really don't need a sermon after that. We just need time to reflect on what she said. And I, I so admire people who walk through pain and are reflective about their own walk with God, like King David, search my heart, see what's happening within my heart. And it's so encouraging to see people who take the time to do that, and how insightful into something I think all of us feel. One thing I think we're feeling is that reality's setting in at Box. Um, Mike's gone, and it's good to pipe him in every once in a while. Um, he's also part of the teaching team, so he's going to not just get piped in to answer questions. Eventually, Mike's going to come in and give sermons, continue his Sermon on the Mount series, and we all love his teaching, but Mike's not here. He's in Ohio, and uh, what are we going to do about that? I'd like to talk about what is the purpose of Vox? What's the purpose of any church? What's the purpose of you as Christians? Um, I'm a huge fan of C.S. Lewis. He's been very instrumental in my life, and Lewis has a quote that I've often reflected on. The quote is, life is made up of first things and second things. Get the first things in place, Lewis says, and the second things follow. So as Christians, what's the first thing that we ought to be about? Now, there's many first things in the scriptures, but as Christians with our ministry, what would be a first thing? Well, first, let me unpack what I think Lewis meant by that quote, and then second, let me give you my best estimation of one of our key first things that comes through the Apostle Paul. So what did um, Lewis mean, life is made up of first things and second things? Um, I told you a couple weeks ago that I have two older brothers. We just terrorized my poor parents. My mom was 18 when she started having kids. They were just overwhelmed, and we didn't help. Uh, In East Detroit, we had a a backyard pool, a huge oblong pool, and um, my mom said, no more swimming. So the Mulehoff boys were throwing the Frisbee across the pool. The Frisbee hit the water, sank, us not being rocket scientists. We grabbed uh, metal poles to try to get the Frisbee, not realizing that the poles were jagged on the edges. As we were trying to get the Frisbee, we were ripping the liner. Just as my dad came home from working a double shift at General Motors, the walls of the pool collapsed. We flooded three backyards. As my dad is walking up the driveway, water is rushing past him. Small animals are going past him. He walks in the backyard. My two brothers dropped the pole. I couldn't even drop the pole. I was like... And he just said, come here, come here. And he sat us all down. He said, August 11th, you're going to do something. This is not a conversation. This is not up for debate. August 11th, you're all going out for football. So I'm going to knock the goofy out of each one of you. Okay, so August 11th, we show up for football, and it, it dominated our lives. My brother Bob played college football. Me and my two brothers, my Ken and myself, we played all through high school. We played junior high, high school football. We'd do wind sprints in the backyard. My dad got us weights. We watched what we ate when we went to sleep. Football became the first thing. Everything else were second things, what you ate when you went to bed, uh, uh, weightlifting, things like that. So is it true in the scriptures that Paul would give us a first thing that would orient how we spend our time, how we think about neighbors, and how we do life? I think that he does give us one of those first things. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we get one of Paul's first things. Paul says this, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. 
as though God were entreating through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Let's continue. Oh, wow, that was short. Okay, um, hang on one sec before we get there. So the rest of the passage says that he's given each one of us something. It's called the ministry of reconciliation, that he is reconciling the entire world back to himself. See, one of the reasons things like what's happening in Texas, what's happening in Charlottesville happen is that the world is not under God's rulership. It's not his kingdom. That's why in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says, I want you to pray daily. I want your kingdom to come. Planet Earth is one of these unique places where God's will is not always done, and it breaks his heart. So we see natural disasters like we're seeing this weekend. Why? Because the world has been tainted by human sin. That's one of the reasons that there's tornadoes, earthquakes, and cancer that Kendra talked about, right? In a fallen world, these are the byproducts of it. God's big purpose for the church is he wants to reconcile everybody back to himself. Now, here's a fundamental question God has. How is he going to do that? How is God going to make himself known to people? Well, he made a decision, a fascinating decision, that he's going to use ambassadors to do it. Now, absolutely, the Holy Spirit touches the heart of every Christian and non-Christian on planet Earth. We call that common grace. Yes, the Bible is available to everybody on planet Earth, though some people don't have access to it. But what he chooses primarily are his ambassadors. These are Christians, and God says, I am literally speaking through you. I'm entreating to people through you. Augustine, when the great ancient thinker said, without God, we cannot, and without us, God will not. So he's committed to the church. For better or for worse, people are going to form an impression of God based on the church. I went to Lithuania with my wife, met some Lithuanians. We lived there for a year with Campus Crusade for Christ. When I was in Lithuania, I met many Lithuanians who had never met an American before. So they're forming an impression of America based on me and my wife. How terrifying is that? Well, the fact of the matter is, people are forming an impression of Jesus based on you and forming an impression of God based on you and forming an impression of the church based on you. But God says, listen, I'm committed to this project. So committed that he ultimately says, how people treat you will be how they would have treated me, and I will hold them accountable for how they treated you. So let me show you this interesting image. This is the Canadian ambassador. This is our American ambassador to Canada. When you look at this picture, what's the first thing you see? Yeah, the American flag. So if you, do you know if you were to treat an ambassador badly from another country, that's a declarative act of war against that person? Uh, uh, President Obama received some criticism that maybe he didn't protect um, individuals in Benghazi as uh, our ambassadors as much as he should have, right? We take it very seriously how you treat an ambassador of another country. Now, does Jesus view us the way we view an ambassador? I think he does. Take a look at these passages. Fascinating. Acts 9, this is when Paul is Saul. He's persecuting the church. This is pre-conversion. Uh, meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul says, who, who are you, Lord? And he says, I'm Jesus who you are persecuting. Now, you can imagine Paul saying, wait, I'm not persecuting you. I'm persecuting this group of ragtag individuals called the way, but I'm not persecuting you. Jesus says, no, 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 no. You persecute them. You persecute me. Now, Jesus himself, when he's sending out the 70 disciples to do miracles, this is what he says to the 70 disciples. Whoever listens to you listens to me. Whoever rejects you rejects me, but whoever rejects me rejects him who sent me. So Jesus is saying, there will be people who will be judged by God at the end of human history that you rejected Jesus. And people are going to say, wait a minute, I didn't reject Jesus. Yes, you did. When that Christian from Vox who lived next to you uh, talked to you and presented the gospel and you rejected it, you might as well have been me because I do not distinguish between my ambassadors and who I am. And if you reject me, Jesus says, then you reject the person that I represent and that is God. So men and women, what, a, what an amazing responsibility. 
Now, here's what's fascinating about this idea that we're ambassadors for Christ. I would assume that if Jesus is really serious about this, he's talking to the A-team, right, of, of Christians. He's not talking to the rank and file, right? He's not talking to the JV team. He's talking to the varsity team, right? Cisco doesn't just pick anybody to represent Cisco or IBM, right? But here's what Paul is fascinating is he's talking to the church at Corinth when he writes this. This is what we know about the church at Corinth. Paul founded it. Um, Corinth was located 40 miles from Athens. Uh, it was a huge commercial success. Think that uh, this was 40 miles outside of Las Vegas. On the highest temple um, was the goddess Aphrodite. Temple prostitution and idol worship were rampant and big business. Now, here's what's really interesting. No one had been a Christian at the Church of Corinth for more than six years. No one. How many of you have become Christians in the last six years? Raise your hand. Okay, that's it. You're the church, right? There's no veterans at this church, and they're messing up all the time. Paul's having to say in his letter, no, 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 don't do this. No, don't take each other to court. No, don't eat food offered to idols. No, stop, stop. Why am I hearing? There's quarrels among you, right? But don't miss the point. He's not talking to the varsity. He's talking to all of us. All of us are ambassadors for Jesus, Right? And then, um, again, they were struggling to give up their old way of life. So, imagine God has a press conference. It's his very first press conference. Never done it before. Everybody would be there. Right? And God gets up at this press conference. And he says, listen, I know there's a lot going on. I know you have a lot of questions about natural disasters, about same-sex marriage, about immigration, about gender, about um, all these things. Right? I know... But I got a lot on my plate right now, right? So I'm going to pick a person that if you have questions about the gospel, if you have questions about the Bible, if you have questions about me, I want you to go talk to this person. And he picks you. Now, what's your name? Josh. He picks Josh. Suddenly, every camera turns to Josh, right? I mean, cameras are going off. People are Googling Josh. Now, what two powerful emotions would Josh have at that exact moment? I think one would be, hey, a heads up would have been nice, right? Not to say I wouldn't have worn this. I'm just saying, if I'm going to be exposed to the world, a little heads up would have been great. Second, I think it would have been, I mean, I would have been like, yeah, that's right, about time I got some respect. And could I get a vanilla latte? Right? I mean, it would be like God just picked me to be his spokesperson. But then you'd want to meet with God and say, okay, can, you, can we narrow this job description? Like, what exactly do you want me to do? Fortunately, Paul narrows the job description. Here's the job description. Job description of an ambassador. Number one, get the message right. Right? 2 Corinthians 5.19, namely that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Men and women, the gospel. If we're in rebellion against God, how do we get out of rebellion? That is the fundamental question that we have to ask. And as ambassadors, we need to be able to sit with people and say, here's how you get back to God. Here's how you get reconciled to God. Men and women, let me say this. This is my 13th year at Biola University. I love millennials, but millennials are losing this ability. They're losing the ability to articulate the gospel. Now, what I love about millennials is they live the gospel, right? They are digging clean water wells. They take social justice very seriously. And by the way, I've, I've written books on this topic that social justice was always part of the DNA of the church, always neighbor love, right? But they also could articulate the gospel. They could sit down with a person and they could say, Here's how you become a Christian. Here's how you accept Jesus as your personal Savior. And are you ready to do that? Yeah. Now, when I ask my students at Biola, Biblical Institute of Los Angeles, anonymously, if that's my definition of proclaiming the gospel, how many times have you shared your faith in the last year? If that's my definition of the gospel, sitting with a person opening like the Romans Road or the Four Spiritual Laws, 
or, or just explaining the gospel and then asking that person, well, are you ready to accept Jesus? The answer is zero. My students are like, well, I'd rather live the gospel. By the way, you should live the gospel, but you need to articulate the gospel in a way that a person can understand it, right? Second, love the whole person. This is John Stott, one of our premier statesmen who just passed away a couple years ago. I cannot claim to love my neighbor if I'm really concerned only for one aspect of him, whether his soul or body. And the church can make a mistake going either direction if we just isolate one or the other. We can become so gospel-centered that we just preach the gospel and ignore the fact that people need clean clothes, water, and food, or we can just talk about the body and do social justice and not the proclamation of the gospel. We need to love a person holistically. Next. Get the tone right, is I think what God would say. God has a radical love for people. So it's one thing to sit down with the person and say, I just want you to know that God loves you. And I think Paul would say, hey, that was good, but like up it by like 10, right? I mean, say to people, you need to know how radical God's love is for you, right? And God demonstrates his love. Take a look at this. He who made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So God looks at planet Earth and it breaks his heart, right? And he wants to fix planet Earth, and the way that he fixes it is through the gospel, that people become right with him through accepting Christ as their Savior. Now, what happens when that happens? One, God had to do something with his judgment. He had to, right? We would think God is immoral if God were just to say to the human race, oh, forget it. Let humans be humans. I'm just going to forgive everybody on three. One, two, three. Ali, ali, oxen, three. You're forgiven. We would look at God and say, no, that's not right. That was not just. We may not have caught all the perpetrators of 9-11, but God's justice knows exactly who is at fault. Right? We trust in the fact that God's justice is more than human justice. So God looked at planet Earth and said, okay, what am I going to do with this sin problem? What am I going to do with it? And you know what he did? He took our problem and he put it on Jesus, who knew no sin. And he became sin for our part. So I, I love that. That's what separates Christianity from other religions, right? Muhammad didn't do that within Islam, right? He didn't die for you, nor did he take on your sins. He, he had no power to do that. Buddha couldn't take on your, um, your bad life right, and do reincarnation for you, but Jesus said, no, I'll take on your sin, and I'll die for you. Now I'm offering you God's righteousness. This is where it gets really cool. See, if I were God, and I was reconciling the world back to me, I would say, okay, I'm going to do this, and it's going to cost me my son, and you're going to enter heaven and just shut up, (laughs) right? You cost me Jesus, So you come in as slaves, you come in as beggars, and maybe in a millennia or two, I'll up your status a little bit. But Jesus doesn't do that. God doesn't do that. No, you come in fully forgiven as daughters and sons into the kingdom, and he gives you Jesus' righteousness. That's what blows you away, right? You don't just come in forgiven. That'd be like wiping out your debt. No, 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 you don't come in that way. You come in with the righteousness of Jesus, which means when God functionally looks at you, he sees Jesus' righteousness. So men and women, God's not mad at you anymore. There's nothing to be mad about. If you've accepted Christ, there is nothing for him to be mad about. And here's the radical good news. God loves you as much as he ever will love you right now. Right? So, go out here and be the best Christian you can be, whatever you think that is, and God, no doubt, will appreciate that, but his love for you didn't increase. Walk out of here and really struggle. Go back to that sin this afternoon that you swore you'd never go back to, right? We, all, we have all made those promises. And God's love for you did not decrease, right? If you're a child of God, he's looking at the righteousness of Jesus. Now, what does that mean? Take a look at this image. Oh, I'm sorry, very quickly, Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hung on a tree. Really weird passage in the New Testament where Jesus is hanging on the cross, and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Boy, that's, so Jesus knows what it's like to be in Kendra's position. Jesus knows that. When he feels like, God, you abandoned me. 
And the reason he did, God turned his back on Jesus because Jesus now had taken on the sin of everyone, past, present, future, everybody. The people who died in 9-11 and the people who committed the atrocities of 9-11. He died for both. It's, ra- it's scandalous, right? So now, next. Uh, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God, next. So here's Bill Gates, okay? Bill Gates is worth $56 billion. $56 billion. How would you feel if you got home and waiting on your iPhone or your telephone was a message that said the bank has forgiven you your mortgage? How would you feel? How would you feel if you got home and you didn't have a mortgage anymore, right? Let's get a little just... It is as hypothetical as you can imagine, but let's just give some applause for fantasy, right? That is not righteousness. That's not what Paul's saying. Righteousness would be you get home and get a message that says, by the way, not only has it been canceled, Bill Gates has put money in your account. Let's say there's 300 people here, $56 billion. You know how much money you'd get if he gave? You'd get $187 million. Now you get home and say, not only is my mortgage done, $187 million has been deposited into your account. How would you feel about that? My, I'd have hair. <laughs> I mean, I could go to Germany for, I don't know, maybe they know, right? That's amazing. That's what Paul means with righteousness. Okay, next slide. Passion and grief. I have great sorrow, Paul says, and unceasing grief in my heart. I wish, if I could, that I was cut off from God so that my Jewish brothers and sisters could come to faith. Boy, that's a gut check. Would you give up your salvation for anybody? Now that you know what it is? Maybe my kids? Depending on the time of... (laughs) Man, that's a gut check. Paul said, I'd do it. I, I, I would give up my salvation. Next. Live a life that doesn't discredit the message. So number one is, um, if, all right, so now you're an ambassador and you actually want to persuade people. I just wrote a book called Winsome Persuasion that talks about this. What do we do? Well, the very first thing is um, you have to address your fear. I think that's interesting. Uh, today, we live in the argument culture, and I really do think today we're just, we're wigged out. We think uh, we can't bring up religion, it's just going to cause an argument. And I think there's ways that it doesn't have to cause an argument. I think you earn the right to be heard by being good neighbors, right? But listen, at the end of the day, the gospel is offensive. Jesus said it. It's going to separate families. It's going to separate neighbors. I mean, we don't need to make the gospel more offensive than what it is. But at the end of the day, Jesus said, I'm God, and other people aren't. The only way to get to God is through me, not other religions. Even though we can learn from other religions, we can deeply respect other religions. At the end of the day, Jesus is God and said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, right? But, but this fear issue is interesting. You know the signers of the Declaration of Independence? It was a death warrant, right? The King of England said, you sign that little treasonous document. I'm sending Cornwallis in the army, and they're going to hang you. Well, there was a man named Tim Witherspoon. He was a pastor, a father, had 10, chi- t- 10 children. He signed it. See, that, that takes moxie, right? I mean, that's what's so cool about John Hancock, right? Hancock was like, yeah. <laughs> come get me, right? So here you have Tim Witherspoon. He signed it. Afterwards, somebody asked him, why did you do that? You're a husband. You're a father. He said, listen to this. Great quote. The, only the fear of God will deliver you from the fear of men. Boy, that's powerful. Do I care more about what God thinks about me than ultimately what a neighbor thinks about me? Okay, then don't live a life that discredits the gospel. Right? Paul says this, giving no cause for offense in anything in order that the ministry be not discredited. So, next slide. Aristotle says this. Aristotle says, if you want to be persuasive, 
Um, there are three things you need to be persuasive. One is intelligence. Do you actually know the facts? And do you know the facts of the other side? Can you argue both sides of an issue? Boy, that's really important, and we've kind of lost that ability today. Second, goodwill. Boy, we've, we've lost that. Let's assume the best about people, not the worst about people. And then third, virtue, kindness. Um, I actually live out what I say I believe. I actually try to live that out on a daily basis. Next. What hinders us? Okay, next. A lack of fear, right? Paul says, knowing the fear of the Lord, we seek to persuade men. We all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We don't talk about this doctrine very much. Now, if you're a Christian, your salvation is not up for grabs. But interesting things are going to happen when you stand before the judgment seat of Jesus. Jesus is going to say, hey, um, you live next to these neighbors for like 10 years. I'm just curious, um, why not have a spiritual conversation with them? Um, why didn't you talk to your family member who wasn't a Christian? I'm just curious why you didn't, right? It has nothing to do with his love, but I think he's going to say, but you were, my, you were my ambassador. I'm just curious what kept you from talking about these things. And by the way, I have regrets. We all have regrets. We look back and think, I don't know why I didn't say anything. I really don't. I went to grad school with brilliant postmodern thinkers, and I didn't share my faith as much as I should have. I'm not totally sure why. God gives me grace. His love isn't up for question. But I think Jesus is going to say, but Tim, you were on the teaching team of Vox. You were on you were at Biola University. What kept you from doing this? It's going to be an honest face-to-face -face conversation. Next. Lack of training. I don't think we know how to do it. I don't think we know how to talk about really difficult topics today, and we better learn quickly. And God wants us to talk about gender. He wants us to talk about sexuality. He wants us to talk about marriage. He wants us to talk about the gospel, but not in an argumentative way. That's the beauty of the book of Proverbs. I love Proverbs 17, 14. Starting a quarrel is like breaching a dam. So drop the matter before a dispute breaks out. So how do you have a good conversation but not have it devolve into a quarrel? Uh, Mike wants me to preach for my new book, and I'm going to do that. I'm going to share some thoughts in today's crazy culture today. How can we have productive conversations? But here's the one I think we're missing the most. I think we have, over time, just forgotten that God is powerful. Just forgotten that God can grab people's hearts. Paul never forgot this. He was Saul persecuting the church, and then he became one of the leaders of the church. Paul never forgot that nobody is outside of God's power. So I'm going to show you a clip. Uh, there's a man named Penn Jillette. You may know him from Penn and Teller, one of the top illusionist groups. He's an ardent atheist. He has a blog where he just attacks Christians and uh, mocks our faith. But an interesting thing happens to him that he reflects on in one of his video blogs. Let's listen to what uh, Penn Jillette has to say about a man walking up to him and giving him a Bible. I want to talk to you about this. Uh, I get home from the show, and at the end of the show, as I've mentioned before, we go out and we, uh, we talk to folks and, you know, sign an occasional autograph and shake hands and so on. And there was one guy waiting over to the side in the um, what I call the hover position after I was all done. Big guy, probably about my age. Big guy. And um, he had been the, um, the guy who has uh, picks the joke during our psychic comedian section of the show. Uh, so he had the props from that in his hand because we give those away. He had the the joke book and the and the envelope and the paper and stuff. If you haven't seen the live show, uh, it's not worth explaining. But he had props from the show that we'd given him from the night before. Uh, he wasn't the guy that night. And he walked over to me and he said, um, I was here last night at the show and uh, uh, I saw the show and I liked it. I wanted, and he was very complimentary about my use of language and um, complimentary about, you know, honesty and stuff. He said nice stuff. No reason to go into it. He said nice stuff. And then he said, I brought this for you. 
and he handed me a uh, Gideon Pocket Edition. Um, I thought it said from the New Testament, but I also thought it was Psalms from the New Testament, right? Or, uh, Psalms from the New, just part of the New Testament. A little book about this big, this thick, you know. He said, I wrote in the front of it, and I wanted you to have this. I'm kind of uh, proselytizing. And then he said, I'm a businessman. I'm, I'm sane. I'm not crazy. And he looked me right in the eye and did all of this. And uh, it was really wonderful. I believe he knew that I was an atheist. But he was not uh, defensive, and he looked me right in the eyes. And he was truly complimentary. It wasn't in any way, it didn't seem like empty flattery. He was really kind and nice and sane and looked me in the eyes and talked to me and then gave me this Bible. And I've always said, you know, that I, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that, uh, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. And atheists who think that people shouldn't proselytize, just leave me alone, keep your religion to yourself. Uh, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. Man, and I've stop, always stop thought right that, and I've written about that, and I've thought of it. How much do you have to hate a person coming from an atheist not to tell me about the gospel? Isn't that powerful? See, that's the first thing. You want to revitalize your marriage? Make it a first thing that above our happiness, above the American dream, we're ambassadors for Christ. We represent, not perfectly. You want to revitalize your family? It isn't just about us, about the Mulehaus. It's something bigger than that. You want to revitalize a church? The purpose of this church isn't merely to be a safe place to get healthy. As wonderful as that is, it is to get healthy so that we can more fully represent who Jesus is to a world who needs to hear him. How much do you have to hate your neighbor to say, I'm not going to tell you about the gospel? How much you got to hate a family member? Men and women, we've been forgiven. Not just forgiven, but the righteousness of Jesus has been applied to us. And yes, it'll offend people. Maybe. But it also can bring people into the family. So what we're going to do right now is we're going to partake of the communion table to remind ourselves of the love of Jesus. It was his body broken for you. It was his blood broken for you. And as we worship, we say to Jesus, thank you so much that my sins were forgiven. I'm a brand new creature. I'm a son and a daughter. And I want to take that love and I want to pass it on to other people through my actions and through my words. So as the worship team plays, come up and partake of Jesus' love and then think about all the people you're going to interact with who also need that love. Thank you so much to Tim for giving us such a great message and such a just great challenge. Just felt in my spirit that I wanted to tell you that you are an ambassador, completely and totally imperfect, and that's okay. So ambassador doesn't look like complete perfection, bringing our perfect stories. It means bringing our very imperfect stories, very broken stories, very need of a savior stories, and that's how we reach the people that we love and care about. It's not about look how perfect I am. It's look how broken I am, and I was saved and redeemed, and I was 
rescued and I want that for you. So let me tell you about my best friend. Um, that's an ambassador. So please leave here knowing you are called to be an ambassador in your very imperfect story. That's just the beauty of all of us misfits being chosen by God to give his kingdom a shout out. <laughs> so I love you. I really do. Tim loves you and he hates that I called him out about not being at the picnic, but Biola starts tomorrow and so he's like got to get all his stuff together. So he apologizes and just was not very happy with me for calling him out. Um, <laughs> but he does want to talk with you and would like to meet you another Sunday when he's available. But I, I love you guys. I want to pray for you. Would you just stand so that I can pray over you? Not that I have any special kind of prayer, but I just have a mic. So that, that helps me to be able to say the prayer louder. Uh, let's pray. Uh, God, I just want to pray for my brothers and sisters in this room right now. I just want to pray right now, God, as, they, as you have spoken to their heart, I know I'm challenged. God, what is it and who is it that you want us to share with? Not our stories of perfection, but our stories of brokenness, our stories of healing, our stories of, gosh, I'm just trying to figure this whole thing out. But one thing I do know is that God sees me and loves me and he saved me. And I want you to hear about him and let's struggle with this together. Let's wrestle through this together. Let me share with you. Help us to not be silent because the very thing that has changed our life, God, the very thing that saved us is the very thing we want for the people we love. So God, I pray a blessing upon every single person here. I pray for marriages to be restored, hearts to be healed, minds to be freed. I just thank you, God. I pray your blessings upon everyone here. Go with them, God. Be with them. Minister to them when the lights are out and nobody's around. I pray, God, that you would just reveal your precious spirit to them of compassion and love. Give us a great day as we feast together. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a participation box. I always forget this. If you want to help us stay alive, can you just drop something in there? If you feel led, they're right over there. Love you guys. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Vox Community Podcast. You can join us on Facebook at facebook.com slash voxcommunity. Participate in the Vox Community at voxoc.com slash participate.